This is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says and exactly what it is that we should believe from God's Word. Our first question comes from a question that we had at the end of Wednesday night's Q&A. We do two Q&As every week. At the end of the Wednesday night Q&A, someone asked about the qualifications to baptize. It was a very kind of a generic question, who can baptize? And this question, of course, uh, is a complicated one. It's a, it's an in-depth one. I don't know if it's complicated or not, but it is in-depth and there's a lot of different people that have gone, uh, that have a lot of different organizations and groups that have made their own rules for qualifications on who can be baptized. So I thought that I would spend some time <clears throat> talking about what the Bible has to say, because that's our guideline. When the Bible tells us something, that's when we want to do it. We, you know, there's a lot of different organizations that make different, that set up different qualifications, uh, all the way from there's only certain clergy in our organization who can do it. You have to be a certain level of clergy to be able to do baptisms, or you have to hold a certain position to be able to baptize in a certain church. I'm not just talking about denominations, but within a certain church, uh, all, all the way to anyone can baptize. A anyone, literally anybody could baptize. And the, idea, the thinking there is, what's important? the faith of the person who's being baptized or the faith of the person that's baptizing. So if you are giving your life to Christ and you are being baptized and the person that is baptizing you is not a genuine Christian, they are a, they're, they're either a tear, they're a fake, they think they're Christian, but they're not. Uh, they're one of those that Jesus would say, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and do not enter the kingdom of heaven? And they baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What makes the baptism genuine? Is it the faith of the person baptizing or the faith of the person being baptized? Now, obviously, we want both to be genuine Christians and both to be sold out. But there are groups that believe that anybody can baptize because it's the faith of the individual that absolutely matters the most. Now, what do we find in the Bible? Jesus told his disciples, uh, as he gathered them together on a mountain in the Galilee, he said, go out into all nations, make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then you find Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. You find Peter baptizing on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people who get saved. Now, there's a lot of different arguments about what baptism is, but what we see here is that people in positions of authority, Philip's been called a normal guy by some people, but Philip was uh, oversaw the, the benevolence fund for the women that were in the church in Jerusalem with other men. So he did hold a position of authority. Uh, so it seems like it's someone who's in authority. And I like that as a guideline for the scriptures, that it's someone that's in authority. It could be someone who led you to Christ. Uh, it could be someone who is a youth pastor. It could be someone uh, who has a home fellowship. It could be somebody that God uses to mentor young men and they can baptize them. We allow parents to baptize their kids, but we do like it to be someone that has, that's holding a position of ministering to their lives. 
we, we, we like that idea and, and would desire that it would be someone who is, uh, who is a genuine Christian. And so, in my mind, in the broad sense of what we find in Scripture, because the Scripture doesn't set any boundaries, the Scripture gives us examples of who baptize, <clears throat> but it doesn't tell us who can and who can't baptize. And so, if all you have is examples, then you've got to make some decisions. So churches in their confessions will talk about who's able to baptize, or churches will in their statements of faith will talk about who's able to baptize. And these are things that churches have the right to be able to set up and establish. But if somebody is over at someone's house at night for, for dinner, and a Christian's there, and they tell them about Christ, and they receive Jesus, and they say, let's go out back and baptize you right now, you take that person outside and you baptize them. And let's just say it's a gal. And she baptizes them. The gal baptizes <clears throat> the other gal. They both come out of the water. They're excited. Has that woman really done what Jesus said when he said, go out and make disciples and baptize? And I'm going to say yes. I think that that is exactly what Christ really wants going on. He wants there. I, I, I think the error is in the other way where people don't see baptism as being that important and don't baptize. I think baptism is something that every single Christian should do, and I think you should do it as soon as you can after you make a commitment to Christ. So the biblical qualifications for baptism depending on the guideline that you use, is that there's nothing in the Bible that gives us any qualifications. Paul baptized, but Paul didn't baptize often. Paul said, I praise God I didn't baptize many of you. And he names a couple people in a family here that he baptized, but he said, God sent me to preach the gospel, not to baptize, which tells us there's a distinction between the gospel which saves you and baptism. All right. So I hope that helps. Uh, we have a new uh, version of, we use Ecamm Live to stream, and we use another program called Restream uh, to be able to bring Facebook and YouTube and Twitter all together to be able to get all of the comments in one place. We've got a new version. It's a, it's a big version that came out of Ecamm Live, and I'm wondering how Restream is going to work with it. Uh, so I see a couple of things that are new. I just kind of want to look around here. So I see a couple of things that are new. <clears throat> But it looks like um, looks like everything is working well. And um, you guys, if there's any problems out there with the new equipment or the way things look or sound or the, or the way if the sound is synced, all of those things can change when they come out with a new version, then let me know. All right? But it is good to see you. <clears throat> and I really appreciate that question. I meant to look it up for who asked it at the end of last study, and I didn't do it. Um, but really, the, the simple answer is... Uh, anyone who is a is a believer can baptize that that's that's what I believe um, I understand people who make restrictions based on you have Paul Philip Peter John the Baptist Jesus's disciples baptizing and no one else I understand that and if someone wants to make those as their guidelines I'm fine with that I would I would really feel uncomfortable with them trying to nullify a baptism by somebody who wasn't in that kind of a position because, hey, they gave their lives to Christ and they were baptized. And I've seen people get saved and be baptized out back in the swimming pool before. And I believe it was completely legit. The same question can be asked about who can give communion, right? Or, or other, other spiritual things. But um, yeah, I believe that anybody who's a genuine believer can baptize. The Great Commission was not just to the disciples. 
It was all of us go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's uh, what I believe. All right. So we have a question from Kara. Kara, good to see you. And uh, if you're if you're new here, want to welcome you. Hope you guys uh, are blessed by the time that we answer biblical questions. We answer questions according to the scriptures. Doesn't have to be biblical, but we answer questions according to the scriptures. Uh, our desire is to know what God's word says, so we can know what to believe. Now, Kara says, now that Jesus is up in heaven which is, by the way, what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about his ascension uh, this weekend in church, his last, his final instructions to the church, and his ascension is our service that we're going to have in about two hours uh, from right now. So now that Jesus is up in heaven, he ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father. Does, uh, does he know the time and the hour that he is coming back uh, to get his bride? So I'm going to have to speculate, Kara, as to whether or not... Jesus now knows it. Uh, let, let's just think about why Jesus said he didn't know it. Not even the Son of Man knows, but only my Father in heaven, because Jesus had become a man, which is a little lower than the angels. And when Jesus was born, he did not have all the knowledge as God. He had to learn and grow. And the Bible says in the book of Luke that he grew in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, which means that Jesus had to grow. And that's such a strange thought that Jesus had to come to the place where, where he said, I think I'm the Messiah. And even more than that, I think I'm God because the Messiah is God. I think I'm the son of God. I think I'm the son of man. I think what it's written about here, written about here. He had to come to all of that. And some suggest that maybe he didn't have it all squared away by the time he was tempted because the devil says, if you are, the son of God. I think he said son of God. He might have said son of man. But if you are the son of God, then turn these rocks into stones. He questioned whether or not he was the son of God. So there were certain things in his humanity he didn't know that he had to learn like every other human did. And that makes sense because Jesus is going through our experience. He's facing what we face. He wasn't born, wrap him up in his little baby towel, lay him in the manger and him say, mom, dad, listen, I'm, 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 the, I'm, I'm the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I'm the lion, the tribe of Judah, the lamb uh, that'll take away the sins of the world. And you guys don't worry about it. Some things are going to get rough, uh, but God's going to direct you. And um, uh, there's going to be some difficult times, but uh, we're going to be able to redeem. He didn't do that, right? He had to learn and grow and, and grow in knowledge. And there seemed a time when he began to have information that no one on earth could have. There was a time when it says that he didn't need he didn't need anybody to tell him what was in man's heart because he already knew what was in their heart. He knew what Simon was thinking when he thought about the prostitute that came and wept at Jesus' feet and wiped the hair with her head. So he did grow in knowledge, but there were certain things he didn't know. And to emphasize the fact that none of us know when Jesus is going to return, and side note, don't tell people you know when he's going to come back because you don't. Uh, and... Um, Everybody who's done it up to this point, and there's a lot of people have failed and been wrong, not even the Son of Man knew. My, spe my speculation is that he is up in heaven now, sitting by the right hand of the Father, and that he knows. That's my speculation. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. It's a speculation. And there's nothing, there's, there's nothing that I know of that you can build on. Um, and and I, I throw out there that I know of now, 
because too many times I've made a statement. I don't, there, there's nothing that says anything about that, only to find out that there is a passage in the Bible that says something about it that I knew, but I just hadn't thought about it in that way. So I'm going to say, Kara, that as far as I know, there's nothing that would tell us that Jesus in his glorified state doesn't have all the access as God yet that he is to somehow change it. He doesn't know when Jesus is going to, when, when he himself is going to come back. By the way, on these same lines, there was a great song back in the 70s uh, that was called Keep On Walking. And I don't remember who wrote it, um, but it was, um, you know, maybe Bob Bennett, maybe Russ Taff. It was back in that era. Um, uh, and Benny Hester back back in that time. But the song said, keep on walking. You don't know how far you've come. Keep on walking. You don't know when it'll be done. And the Father might be standing up right now and give the call to end it all. So keep on walking. It was a, it was a great song of that thought at that moment that God says, it's time to go. And the Son now comes to receive us back to himself. And, and what a day um, that will be. All right. So, Amanda, uh, good morning. Thank you uh, for answering uh, my question in depth. So, Amanda, you were the one who had asked the question whether or not um, uh, who it was who could baptize, and you are welcome uh, very much. I'm wondering where you are, that it is morning where you're at, Amanda, but good to see you and good to have you uh, here with us. It's 4 p.m. here in Tucson. All right, we have a question from Psych Man. I see Daniel 27 on one of my favorite verses, uh, Daniel uh, 27. So he says, if the, trib begins, uh, if the tribulation begins in Daniel 27, would the best dude already be a prom uh, prominent guy? So we're talking about the Antichrist. And would he, be, would he already be prominent? I would think so. I would think the way the world looks to me today, and, and I'll tell you why, um, psych man, because Israel's a nation, they were desolate like the Bible says, God restored the nation, restored the mountains, and he said he was going to do this in Ezekiel, uh, and he was going to restore the people of Israel to the nation. Jesus said they were going to take over Jerusalem uh, and, and to, when the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled, and they have control of Jerusalem, and they're gaining more and more control of the city, even as we speak, and that as, as lo well, long as along with what the Bible says last days are going to look like, doctrines of demons, men heaping up teachers who will tickle their ears, men will be lovers of themselves, all of the other things, um, uh, the love of many will grow cold, all the things that talk about being signs of the times look like it's today. So I think it's very possible the Antichrist could be alive today. I'm not saying he is, okay? Just careful. I'm not saying he is. I'm saying it's possible that the Antichrist could be alive today. Uh, and so, um, yeah, he'll have to be, he'll have to be somewhere where, and remember, he's a political guy. He's a top-notch political guy. People are going to like him. We haven't had politicians that people like in a long time. I think of, I think a lot of people, a lot of people liked, um, despite the difficulties and problems that he had in office, Bill Clinton. A lot of people liked him, likable guy. Um, I think Ronald Reagan was a likable guy in office. Um, before that, <clears throat> you know, JFK was a likable guy, and maybe because of what happened to him, he became even more likable. I think of, um, well, I could just go back thinking of the, the ones I think were likable and good, good politicians who were likable, and I don't know that we've had that in a while. Certainly, the last 
handful of presidents. We've had people who love him and people who hate him. It's caused our nation to be greatly divided. Um, now, you said in 2 Kings 3, 13, 18, um, has God ever based a blessing for you on how many times you did something or he did uh, as he did in Kings here? All right, so that's the second part of your question here or the second question you snuck in uh, there, Psych Man. So let me go ahead and go to the Bible and let's take a look at 2 Kings 13. All right, I'm going to take this down here. And sorry, I uh, sneezed and I found my mute button before I did. It's nice to have something put in place that actually works when it's supposed to. All right, so um, let's see here now. So we have 2 Kings 13, 18. That very rarely ever happens to me, by the way, when I'm teaching or doing something like I'm doing now. I, I don't know that I've ever been teaching and sneezed. But um, I just, I just did. All right. Um, Second Kings. Let's see. Second, Second Kings thirteen eighteen. Second Kings thirteen eighteen. All right. So I'm, I'm going to try to find the setting here before I put it up for you. Okay. So we have the death of Elijah. And let me go to verse eighteen here and I found there it is and let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you well, let's go ahead and look at it psych man and your question here is uh, has God ever based a blessing for you on how many times you did something so I should have known what this was is what I should have known it it was what I should have known all right um, so this is um, Elisha talking to a king and he's going to talk to him about his deliverance. In verse 18, he says, um, he says, then he said, take arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike on them on the ground. And he struck them three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck it five or six times. Then you would have struck the Syrians till they were all destroyed. But you will strike Syria only three times. Okay, so um, what's going on here? I think that this is a sense in which God encourages us that when God tells us to do something, do it and, and trust him and believe by faith. <clears throat> if God tells you to strike the ground, he doesn't tell how many times to keep striking the ground. But these specifically were miracles of Elisha. And um, for example, he had told a woman, go borrow vessels. And then he took oil and he filled the vessels up and as many as she borrowed, he filled up. Then there were the holes they were to dig. An army was coming across and they were going to dig holes and fill them with water. And God filled them with water. And how many holes they dug depended on how many traps they had. So this is like him striking the ground with the arrows. And the lesson that we learn from Elisha's life is that when God tells us to do something, we should do it wholeheartedly and we should do it often that's the whole lesson that we're learning from it so has god ever blessed me based on how many times i do something i'm gonna i'm gonna give that a strong affirmative psych man um because we have all kinds of commands uh by jesus jesus said when you fast 
don't look all sad and act like you're hungry, but do it. So how often do we fast since we've been told to fast? Uh, Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this manner. So how often do we pray? When we haven't been told a certain number of times to pray. When you take communion, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. My, from what we're looking at Elisha, it looks like God is saying, err on the side of often. Don't err on the side of a few, but err on the side of often. And it's probably man's heart to err on the side of few when it comes to things like this. Um, helping the poor, doing your good works in such a way that when men, men see your good works, they glorify God. How often should you do that? We're not told, but we would want to err on the side of doing it many times. So I think that, yeah, I think God has blessed me based on how many times or how many times I haven't done something. And could it be that there are blessings in your life that you haven't received? And this comes from the principle of the ministry of Elisha, Elisha in general. This is how God used him. And it seems to be teaching us that very powerful principle that when God says to do something, do it. Do it with all your heart and do it uh, many times. So thank you, Psych Man, for your questions. If you uh, have a follow-up for that, uh, then please go ahead and ask that follow-up. But it's good to see you guys uh, here. <clears throat> and um, again, I don't see I don't see any Facebook questions, which or just seem to have a, I don't know if it's Facebook or if there's some other reason why the Facebook um, just don't seem to come through for a while. Looks like we get some of them near the end. Um, so again, hi, good to see you guys. <clears throat> good to have you here. We have a question from Jari. Jari says, um, question, if God exists outside of our time, do our prayers in the future get answered uh, regarding as something that happened in the past um, Ephesians 3.20. So let me go ahead and go to Ephesians 3.20. And I am, there's something, before we get there, let me go ahead and pull it up. And <clears throat> Ephesians 3.20. And I'm going to let you guys go ahead and look at that. All right. Actually, I'm going to just go ahead. I'm just going to go ahead. I, I've got to, there's something I got to go take care of. It won't take me more than maybe 20 seconds, but I got to go take care of it. So this is, this is live and sometimes live things happen like this. And uh, so I'm going to go take care of that. So I will return in just a moment. All right, good to see you guys again. And uh, for all you know, I was standing here the whole time. All right, uh, so um, this is a question that we have from Jari. And Jari says, 
if God exists outside of our time, do our prayers in the future answered regardless of something that happened in the past? Uh, so Ephesians 3.20, let me look at that. I'm not sure I understand your question, but let's take a look at that. So I already have it up, right? Yep. So let me go ahead and look at this. Thanks for your question, Jari. Let's see if we can figure it out. Now to him who is exceedingly able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever. Amen. So I'm just trying to look at this, the futuristic aspect of this, to him be the glory, um, be glory in the church Christ Jesus for all generations forever. Amen. So could things that we be praying about in the future, read your question again, if God exists outside of time, which I believe he does. Okay, I believe God created the time, matter, space continuum. Remember, our matter, space, and time are all interconnected. That's what um, Einstein figured out, all right? And uh, so he is, he did create the continuum that you and I live and move and operate in. Um, do our prayers get answered in the future? Do our prayers in the future get answered regarding as something that happened in the past or regardless of something that happened in the past. Um, I'm going to have to, at this point, Jari, pass on your question and, and maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just not, uh, I'm just not reading that question correctly. Maybe I just have some things that, that I'm looking at that aren't right. Sorry, I pressed the wrong button, uh, that aren't right. So I'm going to go ahead and pass on that question right now, and maybe you can clarify what you're saying. Um, do I mean, let me just deal with the idea of time. So if, can I pray in the future and have God answer my prayer now after something has happened? Um, and I'm going to say I don't know of any example of that. And you're kind of asking God to take back time right? Like Superman flying backwards around the world and, and reversing time. <clears throat> and I don't know that that's ever happened where somebody prayed something and God went back and fixed something that had already happened. It would seem to me like I'm going to give a pretty strong no to that can't happen if that's the question um, that you're asking. All right, Jari. So thank you. I appreciate that. So we have a question from Donald Duck. Good to see you, Donald Duck. I would do my Donald Duck if it wasn't so annoying uh, to do that kind of stuff. Question, the Bible isn't written in order. What's the best way to understand the order of things? So this is a very broad question, Donald Duck, for uh, if you would like to read the Bible in order, there are many good chronological order Bibles that are out there. You can do it on an app where you just, I think version has a chronological Bible on it. Um, you can have it read to you in chronological order uh, that will help you understand it. But remember, this is just someone making decisions about where things should be in chronological order. And instead of doing that, and I understand the desire to do that. When I read, I read a D.L. Moody <clears throat> biography a few years ago called A Passion for Souls. Highly recommend the book. So awesome. So good for, for 
firing us up for, for faith in God and trusting him. Great, great stuff, but passion for souls. And they went through his life in a different form. They basically did it like the Bible does, basically from the creation of the world until the end, right? But inside of it, there are things that are, are different, take place in different times. Well, this book did the same thing. What it did was it wrote the life of D.L. Moody based on the friends that he had and when he interacted with them. So it would talk about who did, like um, a guy by the name of Bliss that did music for him for a while in his crusades. He would talk about that relationship. <clears throat> then he would talk about another relationship. And these relationships overlapped. So that sometimes you have to go back in time to catch the relationship that he's talking about in there. It was very well written and very good, but I found myself often wanting to go, now, was this before or after he was back in the army? Because to me, just being, you know, from the West, we want that chronology. We like that chronology. And um, the Bible doesn't have it. And instead of just asking, you know, what's the order of things here? It might be better, Donald, Duck, um, friend. That's the whole name, by the way, Donald Duck friend. Uh, it may be better, Donald Duck friend, <clears throat> to ask, why are the accounts in the Bible next to the other accounts that are in the Bible? And the place that you see this really well is in the book of Mark. There are accounts that are put together in threes that will emphasize the middle story so that something happens before it and after it and in the middle. And it's out of chronological order sometimes, but it's emphasizing something. And sometimes accounts are put together in Matthew and Luke and in John next to each other to make a statement. So we've got to ask, what can we learn? Why, why did the author that wasn't from America, wasn't from the West, why did he write it the way that he wrote it? Why did he compile it the way that he compiled it? What's the reason that he did there? Those are things that we can learn. Now, knowing them in chronological order, um, did the feeding of the 5,000 come before or after uh, the second storm on the sea in the life of Jesus? I like to know them in order. It helps me to know them in order personally, but it's gonna be more powerful. The fact that, I'll give you an example. When the, uh, Jesus got in the boat with the disciples and headed across the water, there was a storm that they were in where Jesus was asleep and the disciples thought they were gonna die. And they woke him up and said, don't you care, we're perishing. And Jesus calmed the water and rebuked them for their faith. And then they went to the, the area of the Gadareans where they ran into a demon-possessed man. So there was this tempest before they got there. Now, is God saying something about the, the, the demonic forces trying to get to battle in the storm beforehand? So there could be things that we can learn like that uh, instead of trying to figure out the chronological order. I'm not saying there's no value in it, but if you want, the, you want that value in chronological order, um, then read one of the chronological Bibles. And you might not even have to read it. You might just be able to go and look at the chapters of the chronological Bible and be able to figure out um, what happened when it happened. It can, be, it can be very helpful in the Old Testament too because you find out when certain books were written. Like when did Daniel and Ezekiel live prospectively to each other? A chronological Bible will give you that. And that can be very helpful in the midst of Bible study. All right? So, um, it's good to see you guys. Uh, Jari has a follow-up into the answer prayer. So, let's see if he, he clarifies. Uh, question, follow-up. <clears throat> Does God somehow answer prayers 
that we will pray in the future regarding the immediate circumstances if God is interceding for us. Who is he interceding to? Thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, again, I'm, I've never seen an example of a prayer that I'm praying today that God would reverse it. I've heard people praying it, you know, they've gotten in trouble somehow. God, please make that never have had, please don't they never have made that mad, bad decision. I don't, I don't think God does that. Now, who's God to listen to Robert Furrow, right? But I don't see it as examples in the Bible. I've never seen it happen. I don't think God does that. Um, he's interceding between us and the Father, but he's really interceding between us as men who deserve wrath and God, a holy, just God, who's going to bring wrath, and he intercedes for us. So he's, he's interceding between the Father and us for us. He is the mediator. And when you think of intercessor, it might be better to think of it as a, as a, as a mediator. Uh, intercessor, a mediator, the work that he does um, while he's interceding for us. Um, I would love to actually do a full Bible study on how Jesus intercedes for us. I think there'd be a lot of really interesting stuff in, uh, in that. All right, where is that passage at, by the way, that says he is um, making, he, he lives to make intercession for us? Hebrews? Yeah, so I just did Hebrews not that long ago, <laughs> unfortunately. All right, um, <clears throat> I want to do it again because I don't think I did it justice, by the way. Um, Ashley O says, question. Um, so we have another question about baptism. Is full body immersion necessary for baptism? For example, would it be okay for a wheelchair-bound person to be baptized uh, with a basin of water. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate your question. Um, so there are there are so many arguments about baptism. Uh, people that believe <clears throat> that it affects your salvation. Uh, you, Jesus said, "Go out, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit." So you make disciples first, and then you baptize them. He doesn't go say, "Go out, baptizing people, making them disciples." So baptism is not salvation, and we could talk about this more if you want to. Paul said, "God sent me to preach the gospel, not to baptize." Acts, I think it's two twenty-eight where it says, be baptized for the remission of your sins, that word for there can and often is translated because, be baptized because of the remission of your sins. It doesn't just mean for, <clears throat> it can mean because, and can be just be a poor translation there. Um, when it says there's an anti-type which saves us baptism, it doesn't have to be talking about water baptism because the word baptism means to be immersed and we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. That has nothing to do with water. They wanna make it water. They wanna make every time what baptism is used to be water, but then it means immersed. <clears throat> when it says in Acts chapter nine, there's a group of people that have received Jesus and they've been baptized into Christ by water. And then the, the disciples come down and say, have you guys ever received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we had not heard that there was such a Holy Spirit. And then he says, what were you, have you been baptized in then? And they said, we were baptized <clears throat> uh, in, into Jesus Christ. And we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And so they lay hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So that would be an implication that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that is disconnected from water baptism. So baptismal regeneration 
is a works-based religion. If you believe you are saved by being baptized, then you take the danger of certain people not really being saved because they were baptized. I knew someone like this, a, a, a distant family member who had been baptized, didn't have a relationship with Christ as far as I could tell. Okay, I'm not judging him completely. I'm just saying I didn't see any evidence or any fruit of that. And, and he was adamant that he was saved because he was baptized. And that if I didn't get baptized in the church that he was baptized in, that I wasn't going to be saved either. Even though I had a relationship with Christ and, and was walking with Christ openly and had a ton of fruit in my life that Christ was working. So there's a lot that goes on into this whole account of baptism. Now we come to immersion. And the examples that are given in scripture are immersion. Again, when we were talking about who can baptize, the examples of people who can baptize in the Bible are those with authority. The, we have a deacon baptizing, we have Paul baptizing, we have a John the Baptist baptizing, we have Jesus' disciples baptizing. So the ones that are baptized are those with authority. Now we come to the conclusion that it's the faith of the one being baptized that matters more than the faith of the one doing the baptizing. And we should look for someone who is in authority or led us to Christ, but we don't see any restrictions in the scriptures that tell us that we can't have a, a, a I, I hate to use the word normal because we're all a kingdom of priests, right? As Christians. So we're all king, a kingdom of priests. Um, but, but, you know, somebody who isn't in a position of authority baptizing, which I believe you can. Like I said, somebody leads the Lord, someone to the Lord, and then they can take them out in their pool and baptize them. And, it's, and I don't think God's going to go, nope, that doesn't matter. So, by example, we would rather have someone with authority baptizing. So, when we do baptisms at our church, because of what we see in the scriptures with who baptizes, we have our pastors on staff, and sometimes they're lay pastors, which means that they're, they're not getting paid, they're no longer working as a pastor, they're retired pastors, um, or, or whatever the situation is that they're a lay pastor for us, uh, then they're, they're the ones doing the baptizing. That's who we have determined to baptize. We don't just go, hey, who would like to baptize today? Anybody here want to baptize? Because of what we see in Scripture with those who are in authority. So we just want to err on that side. But we don't have any fast rule that only those who are pastors can baptize. So the same thing when it comes to immersion. We see immersion. And when I was baptized, I was baptized as a baby sprinkled in the United Methodist Church. I don't think it hurt me, but it didn't do what baptism was supposed to do because it's believe and be baptized, not be baptized and then believe. So it's make disciples, I become a disciple, and then I'm baptized. So when I was got, got saved, we went to our pastor, who was still the Methodist pastor, and asked him if he would baptize us again. He said, you don't need to be. And we said, we think we do, and we showed him some scriptures. And to his credit, he said, yes, I will baptize you. And he called up a friend of his who had the Baptist church down the street, and they met us there, and I had a United Methodist uh, pastor baptize each of us. Uh, there was like five or six of us as, as high schoolers, 14 years old, who had gotten saved. And we were all baptized in a Baptist church by a, um, by a United Methodist pastor who had only baptized babies up until this point. I don't know, maybe he baptized some adults, people who had become Methodists that hadn't been baptized as a child, so I shouldn't say that. Um, but I doubt that they, they sprinkled, I doubt that they dunked. 
Okay, but you know who knows. Um, what matters more, the form at which you are baptized, or the heart of being baptized, the heart of the person being baptized? And so, when you get up to heaven, and if you were in a church where they poured, you go up to the front and they pour water over you, and they I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the water symbolized being immersed in, in the, uh, the Holy Spirit, dying with Christ and rising up in newness of life, <clears throat> is God going to say you weren't really saved? If you had the same exact faith, then you were baptized into water where you went under the water and came out of the water. Is now God going to know, go, you were baptized the right way. It didn't matter what was going on in your heart you get to go to heaven. We would say it always matters what goes on in their heart, right? But I don't see God rejecting people who aren't baptized, who get sprinkled, who get poured, or who get who get dunked. However, get baptized. And uh, we're going to do it the way that we see the example in the Bible. Like we saw leaders baptizing, so we as a church, Calvary Tucson, have leaders baptized. Is there any restrictions? N no, but we see the example in the Bible as baptism, the Ethiopian eunuch, as, as, as immersion, Ethiopian eunuch. Um, this is probably a copy of, of Israel when they would be, get ceremonial baptized. They would dunk down in the water and come up clean. It was a symbol of that. Um, it seems like that's what John the Baptist did out in the wilderness. I think the only real example that we have is them going into the water and coming out of the water with Ethiopian eunuch but if you want to argue about it, it doesn't ever say the Ethiopian eunuch went under the water. Now, we believe it was immersion, and we think we've got some strong evidence for that. But wouldn't it just be funny if we were wrong that the, the early church did baptize by immersion, but they baptized by taking people down in the water and then poured water over them, but they didn't actually dunk them all the way down into the water? It seems a better picture to go under the water and be buried and to come out of the water in newness of life but I just think that would be, I, I think it would be funny and maybe even fitting for people that put too much emphasis on how you're baptized. Well, you're not really saved because you didn't get baptized the way that we say you get baptized. Because the Ethiopian eunuch went into the water and out of the water. Yeah, but does it say he went all the way into the water and then all the way out of the water? You're, you're beginning to put emphasis where emphasis shouldn't be put when you're doing that. So, um, I, because it because it looks like immersion, then I want to do that. That's how we want to baptize people. And it probably was immersion, and we'll do that. Uh, we'll, uh, I can tell you that we've gone to a, a hospital bed where someone is dying, and they're hooked up to a machine, and they've given their lives to Christ, and they want to be baptized, and that we baptize them by pouring some water on them and believe that they are baptized. It's, it's like the thief on the cross who Christ saved. You know, I, I, I don't think God is as concerned about the method. If he was, he would give us that in the scriptures. He would give us the Now, when you baptize, make sure that they go all the way under the water, that you don't leave any part of them, not out of the water, under the water, but you get every part of it. He'd give us that. He would give us instruction. We have examples in the Bible, and we should do our best to follow those examples but it doesn't make the examples hard and fast rules. And that's really important. That when you are, 
when you are looking at examples in the Bible, it doesn't make them hard and fast rules. There is direction that makes things hard and fast rules. If God wanted to write those things out, he could have wrote them out. And so you have all these different churches with all of their different views about how you should be baptized exactly. All right, so thank you uh, for your question. Um, Jari, uh, wait, was the follow-up? No, no, who was it uh, who gave me the, that second question? It was Ashley. So thank you, Ashley, I appreciate it. If this is your first time here, Ashley, good to have you. I uh, hope that you return. Uh, we take questions about anything, uh, the Bible, prophecy, um, apologetics, uh, different struggles that you may be going through, uh, uh, questions that you might have about family members. Um, we'll, we'll take questions about anything and we'll look at them in the light of scripture. That's our desire, to give a bib, the best biblical answer that we can get from the pages of scripture. It doesn't mean that I have all the answers. If you guys have been here for a while, you know I'm not afraid to say, I don't know, I don't know. I'm not afraid of that. Um, but we wanna give it the best possible answer uh, that we can give. So we have Empress Kimberly, and good to see you, Kimberly. And um, she says, hi, Pastor, hi. Uh, I know we are not supposed to forsake the gathering together, but I've been unable to find a local church. Plus I, I am, plus I am my parents' uh, caregiver. And I think I knew that from a previous answer, Kimberly, and can't leave them alone is online okay? Um, I would, let me answer this in a roundabout way. I would like to see you as a part of a local congregation. Even if you can't find one that you want to join, okay? Um, and, and, and I, I don't believe membership. So when it says, don't forsake the gathering of yourself together, it's not saying be, go become a member of a church. Okay, we don't have formal membership at Calvary Tucson because again, we're trying to do things in a biblical standard. Doesn't mean having formal membership is wrong. Oftentimes the membership is there because it helps them to raise funds. They take them through a membership class and they show them how you're supposed to give to the church. And they usually have tithing, which is wrong, but they usually have that as part of what they're supposed to do. But I would like to see you, and remember, I've answered this in a roundabout way, so listen to everything I've got to say here, Kimberly, would you please? I would like to see you as a part of a local fellowship, um, even if you can only attend occasionally. And you have to make some kind of arrangements to get someone there with your parents uh, while you can go. That you can say, yes, I am, I'm assembling myself together because the Bible says don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. So you're looking for some way to gather. Now, having said that, the, the vast majority of the time you're there with your parents and you can't do anything. And so we have online church now. It's something we haven't had before. Is it as good as being there in person? No. And I hear that all the time. So many people watch our services online and then they'll come to me at church. They wanna, they wanna meet me. They've watched us online for a while. So they come up, they wanna meet me and they'll say, wow, being here in person is just so awesome because there's just something about gathering together that makes a really good connection. There's something about being part of a faith community 
the koinonia, the fellowship that God wants us to have. And we have some of it here, right? We have some koinonia here. I see you guys in the comment section really loving one another, being there for each other, and having that koinonia. I don't know that it can take the place of physically gathering together. Now, having said that, if you can't do it, if it just doesn't work, I mean, it really honestly doesn't work, then yes, it's fine uh, to, to go to church online. Or if you've got to go to church online most of the time now and can rarely get to a, to a church service. And I think, you know, the gathering together of yourselves, you can't find a church that, that oh, how did you put it here? Um, I've been unable to find a local church. So whatever your criteria for the local church is, I don't know if that is, in other words, you may have to go to a church where you don't necessarily like the music or the preaching style, but that doesn't mean that you can't worship in their music or that you can't be ministered to by the preaching style. You are, by faith, doing what God's asked you to do. And, and that is by gathering yourself together. And if you absolutely can't do that, then yes, there's, I mean, there's exceptions of everything um, that the Bible tells people to do. Um, G, uh, the Bible says, let men everywhere lift up holy hands and pray. And what if somebody doesn't have arms? They can't lift up holy hands and pray. They can't obey what's said there. And so if you're unable to do it, then yes, of course, um, watching, being a part of an online fellowship is good. Um, However, I'm going back again, I would like to see you as a part of a local fellowship, even if you can't find one that, that checks all the boxes for you. I think it's a benefit for you to be there. And maybe for those listening who may not have an online fellowship because they can't find one they like, uh, it's really not about what we like. You know, find one that's the closest and go there. And if they're doing some things like fundraising, stuff that drives you crazy, then go ahead and bite your tongue during that time and get through it, okay? So um, I'll, I'll take a follow-up, uh, Kimberly, the really important question. So if you have a follow-up on that, I would love to hear it, all right? So Requia, we, uh, good to see you. Uh, Requia says, just a follow-up question from Wednesday, Revelation 25 and 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is one of the examples of the same scripture used to support pre and post rapture. I learned pre-trib, but how, but how do we truly know? Um, all right, let me go ahead and we're gonna, we're gonna look up one of these, these passages. I'm gonna give you, I, I had said on Wednesday night that I am so pre-trib, I don't eat post-toasties. And told you that I stole that saying from Charles Swindoll. But I am persuaded that it is pre-millennial and that it is pre-trib. And the reason that I've come to that conclusion is because I believe that the Bible is to be taken literally where it can be taken literally. And to come to any other conclusion means, conclusion means that you have to start taking certain passages of the Bible and allegorizing them to mean something else. So I'm, I'm gonna read you a couple of passages in a moment here, but let's go ahead and take a look at Revelation 20 verse um, five. And let's see how this is used by both sides, okay? But the rest of the dead, oh, let me put it up on the screen for you here. But the rest of the dead, uh, here we go, we'll do it up here. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the th a thousand years were finished, but this is the first resurrection. 
blessed and holy is he who has part. Okay, so yeah, require, I, um, yeah, this is the, the first resurrection argument, okay? And I'm gonna put your question over here. I've still got it up. I just don't have it on the screen. Um, so yeah, the first resurrection argument is a, a different way of looking at that. So they're gonna say this is part of the first resurrection, but if you read on, it's just opposed against the second death, which is the resurrection of all of those who are not going to heaven. So Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and Jesus resurrected in 30 whatever AD. So was he part of the first resurrection? Are these the only people part of the first resurrection? And then if you have people resurrected before that and people changed in the resurrection, are they part of the first resurrection? So the first resurrection is just opposed against the second death. Anybody who isn't part of the second death would be part of the first resurrection. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, where it says, some were raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. The everlasting life could have had three sections of the everlasting life and the everlasting death could have had one. It doesn't mean because it says the first resurrection that that's the very first person who has ever resurrected. If it strictly meant that, then Jesus would not have risen from the dead. And so that, that you could not have the resurrection take place before it, okay? So that's, that, that's the way we look at them. And someone's gonna look at this and who is post-trib and go, this proves my point. And I'm gonna look at it and go, it doesn't prove your point. All it says is that this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is a part of these believers, but Jesus and other believers could be a part of that first resurrection. He was our first fruits of the resurrection. Okay? So, so there's that one. So that, and that is a good passage, by the way, Requiah, that, uh, that helps us to understand that there can be things that are used differently. Now, the first Thessalonians 4.17, I don't get. And let me go there because... I, I, I know what it says, but let me just get there and, and take a look of how they could use this um, in, in a different way, in, in a way to say that um, both sides use this. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So again, this passage doesn't have anything to do with the argument of where it is at. It just is the fact that there is a rapture. This is the one that I go to to say, look, this is an event. There is an event that is a resurrection and is a rapture. But if there's a way in which this can be argued to prove a post-resurrection, I don't know it. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So there's always gonna be people alive. Jesus is coming to judge the dead and the, and the, the, um, the living and the dead. There'll always be people alive and meet him in the air, and they'll always meet him in the air, so we'll always be with the Lord. If I'm wrong about pre-trib, this passage is still good. If I'm right about pre-trib, this passage is still good. I understand the other one. All right, let me go ahead and get you out of there and um, answer your question here a little bit more. Um, so you then go on to say, um, how, but how do we know truly? All right, so I wanna tell you why I can be so confident. Because there are passages like Revelation 3.10, where God says to the faithful church, because you have kept my word and persevered, they persevered and kept me in his word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is testing the whole world. There's another passage, Luke, uh, Luke 21, and I'm gonna go ahead and pull this one up for you. Uh, Luke 21, and these, these are passages that tell us 
that God's going to keep us from. Now, people say they'll keep you through the tribulation is what that means in Revelation. However, it can't mean that because in Revelation, it says power was given to the Antichrist over the saints. And so if you say God's going to keep you through it, but power is given to the Antichrist over the saints, then you can't say you're going to be taken through the tribulation period. And here in, I think it's 34, yeah. Okay, so Jesus is talking here about the tribulation period. Um, so in, in Luke 21, he's talking about the tribulation period. You can go back and you can look at it later, all right, in context. But here he says, but take heed yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, that the day come upon you unexpectedly. So you could be not paying attention, involved in carnal behavior, and the day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the face of the earth. That's the same thing Revelation 3.10 said. That, he, that those um, I will keep, because you've kept my word to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial to test those who dwell on the earth. This is who this thing comes upon, the tribulation period. Those who dwell on the earth. You and I require don't dwell on the earth. We're his bride. Uh, God, this is God's wrath. It's his anger. Uh, the tribulation period. One of the characteristics is that it's God's wrath. First Thessalonians 5.9, Revelation, excuse me, Romans 5.9 says, we have been saved from the wrath to come. And even if people argue that that's the general wrath and not the wrath of the tribulation period, then we're still safe from the wrath to come. God's not mad at us. God's not going to beat us up. Uh, it goes on to say here, for it will come as a snare on those who dwell on the whole earth. Watch therefore, now here's God's command to us, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all of these things. What things do you have to escape? When he's talking about the tribulation period in, in Luke 21, what things do you have to escape? To come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. And there's the rapture and to stand before the Son of Man. So pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all of these things and stand before the Son of Man. Now, I understand, require why people end up believing the way that they believe, but understand that the post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath tribulation people are few and very vocal. That the majority of people, and they bring up things that are, are, are myths, like the Darby thing, that Darby invented the rapture. It's a myth. The rapture is found clearly taught in church history. And the so-called demon-possessed girl that gave it to him talked about post-tribulation, not pre-tribulation. So you find all views back in church history. So they, they, they stoop to telling um, things that aren't true, myths, to try to make their point. And when I see it, I just tell them to stop, stop telling them to stop spreading lies because this never happened. This is a Christian myth. It never happened. Um, and so uh, the vast majority of Christian scholars, believers, evangelicals believe in the pre-millennial, pre-tribulation rapture. The vast majority. And there's a reason for that because the Bible so clearly lays it open. The fact that Jesus said, watch and pray because you don't know when I'm coming. Be ready because you don't know when I'm coming. If it happens in the middle of the tribulation period, I'm gonna see the abomination of desolation and go, oh, it's time to go. If it happens at the end, I'm gonna be at the end of the tribulation period and go, oh, Jesus is coming back for me today. When it happens at the beginning, then 
if it happened at pre-wrath, which is chapter six of the book of Revelation, then right after the first five seals are opened, which barely anything has happened, is almost the very beginning of the tribulation period, um, then it's the very first event of the tribulation period. Uh, then, um, yeah, I forgot my, 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 my train of thought there. Um, but it's just very few that believe in, in, in one. it's the same thing with preterists. Very few preterists believe that all of it has been fulfilled in the past. It's just that they're very vocal these days. And you can be confident when you look at good, solid Bible teachers like David Jeremiah, like Charles Swindoll, like Greg Laurie, like Skip Heitzig, um, like um, John MacArthur, although I would disagree with certain things about soteriology with John, uh, a good, solid teacher who is um, part of the Reformation, but who is pre-tribulation. So all of these bring us to the point where we want to heed the things that are said. The Bible says when Jesus returns, we're going to be with him. So how are we, we with him unless we go to be with him before that happens? All right. So those are just a few of the things that I hang on to. I can't believe I spent all the time. You got me talking about the rapture and I ate up all of our time here. All right. Um, uh, requires to, clar to clarify my frustration in being torn between knowing what position to trust. I believe uh, in the rapture, but worry the double arguments, same scriptures may have us all ill-prepared or over-prepared. I would say the safe place to be is to think Jesus could come back at any moment, so I'm going to be ready. The idea that some people's faith are going to be crushed because they find themselves in the tribulation period, the tribulation period is so awful that if I'm wrong and people are in the tribulation period, uh, it's not going to be my, my, my hope that I taught them that is going to cause them to have problems in the tribulation period. It's going to be that you better be serving and trusting God in the tribulation period. Um, there is... There, the way people are going to interpret Scripture is based on a few things. People who are post, who believe in post-tribulation are people who believe that God's not operating with Israel today. There's a lot, they don't take the Bible literally. There's, uh, when they can, as often as they can. There's certain foundations, and I do have a video requiring which might help you. There's a video that that's called the foundations of the pre-tribulation rapture. It doesn't go over verses for it. It goes over what people believe who believe in a in pre-tribulation and what people who don't believe in it believe. They're the foundations for it. Like the people who don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, for the most part, don't believe that God's working with Israel today. And so there's a certain questions I could ask you. Do you take the Bible literally? Do you believe that God has caused Israel to be reborn as a sign of the last days? I could ask you a few questions, Require, and I could find out where you lean because there are certain things that cause people to believe one way or another, all right? So we are at the very end of uh, our Q&A. A lot more questions that are here. Uh, I'll take a look at these, all right? Thank you guys for your questions. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for sharing with us today. Uh, the hour is sure to go by fast today. Um, I may very well use um, your question uh, to bounce off of this and talk about why people come 
to certain eschatology positions, what are the foundations for the tribulation period. All right. So thank you very much, Rekwaya. All right. And um, we'll talk about it later. We can bring it back up again and we can talk more about it. So you guys stay close to Jesus. Uh, we've got a service in about an hour. And um, in about an hour and 20 minutes, I'll be teaching on the very last passage out of the book of Luke. We've been in it for a hundred and something passages, 103, 104 um, teachings. We're going to be talking about the last words Jesus gives to the church, and then we're going to be talking about the ascension. So that's the Bible study tonight, all right? So I appreciate you guys. Um, stay close to Jesus, all right? Love him. Put your trust in God's word. It's alive. It's active. It's powerful. It's meaningful. It's strong. Jesus said, blessed are you if you hear my word and do them. So stay close to Jesus. I got to go. I'm late, all right? So God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you next time.